Welcome to another Griffith University podcast. Um, good evening, everybody. Um, my name is Russell Storer. I'm the head of Asian and Pacific Art here at the Gallery of Modern Art, and I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. Um, first of all, I'd just like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land that we meet upon, and I'd also like to welcome our special guests tonight. Um, I'd like to welcome Lenine Ford, Chancellor, um, Pro Professor Ian O'Connor, Vice-Chancellor and President of Griffith University, and Professor Michael Powell, Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Business. I'd also like to welcome up from Sydney, Ms. Maviani Sendi, the Vice-Consul for Economic Affairs of the Consulate of Indonesia, and Mr. Danny Pakasa, Vice-Consul for Social and Cultural Affairs. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Mr. Jeffrey Ewing, the President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs, who are co-hosting the presentation tonight, along with Griffith Asia Institute and the Queensland Art Gallery as part of our Perspectives Asia series. This series of seminars in our collaboration with the Griffith Asia Institute is an important one for us at the Gallery, offering significant and varied perspectives on society, culture and politics in the Asia-Pacific region today. It's been a very busy couple of months. Um, we've had recent speakers including Dr. Michael Wesley, a previous director of the Griffith Asia Institute and now at the Lowy Institute for International Policy in Sydney. His Excellency Professor Kim Wilsung, Korean ambassador to Australia. And last week, Pushpamala N, one of India's leading contemporary artists. Tonight we're honored to host Dr. Rizal Sukma, the executive director of the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta who will reflect upon recent developments in Indonesian foreign policy, which of course is of crucial importance to us here in Australia. So I'm looking forward very much to hearing what he has to say tonight. So I'd now like to hand over to Professor Andrew O'Neill, the Director of the Griffith Asia Institute, to introduce our speaker this evening. Thanks very much. Thank you, Russell, and it's my uh, great pleasure tonight to introduce uh, our speaker. Indonesia is a complex and multi-layered country. It's comprised of 17,000 islands, home to 300 ethnic groups, and is made up of 33 different provinces. It's also characterised by paradoxes. Indonesia is Southeast Asia's largest economy, but it has a per capita uh, gross domestic product rate, or GDP rate, that classifies it as a developing country. It's the world's largest Muslim state, but most Indonesians are relatively secular and tolerant of others' religious beliefs. Indonesia has been experiencing something of an Islamist revival since uh, President, Suharto President Suharto's demise in the late 1990s, yet very few believe it's uh, at risk of becoming a religious state or a theocracy. Indonesian nationalism has been a powerful force both before and since independence in 1950, and yet Indonesia's approach to foreign policy issues remains internationalist in tone and in substance. For some time, Jakarta has been an active player in, in constructive multilateral diplomacy in the areas of arms control, the environment and counter-terrorism, to name a few. Today, Indonesia is one of Asia's most vibrant democracies uh, uh, and, and has a particularly engaged uh, civil society. But for most of its post-independence existence, Indonesia was ruled uh, by authoritarian governments. Indeed, it's perhaps because of this history that Indonesia's willingness to work hard at sustaining democratic reforms and promoting pluralities of perspective is unrivaled anywhere else in Asia. Independence 
has been at the heart of Indonesian foreign policy since it gained its own national independence in 1950. Jakarta's leadership of the Asian Non-Aligned Movement Group of States exemplifies this role, uh, as does its uh, leadership uh, in the formation of the Association of Southeast Asian Nations grouping in 1967. Today, within ASEAN, Indonesian diplomats are often at odds with their ASEAN counterparts when it comes to the issue of political and civil rights in Asia. And I think this speaks to a broader trend in contemporary Indonesian foreign policy. That is, the increasing salience of democracy as a normative principle in shaping how Indonesia seeks to engage the outside world. Indonesia's embrace of democracy since 1998 has been as wide-ranging as it has been swift. Yet Indonesia sees its role in Asia as being more than simply uh, as a democratic norm entrepreneur. Along with fellow G20 members, Australia and South Korea, Indonesia is working hard to build regional institutions and frameworks in Asia that will help safeguard the region against great power rivalry and confrontation. Ensuring that large secondary powers have a strong voice in shaping Asia's destiny is a key undercurrent of Indonesian foreign policy thinking. Australia's relations with Indonesia are very positive, even close, at a government-to-government -government level. While the bilateral relationship has had its up and downs since 1950, it has been underpinned by a mutual respect that was forged during the late 1940s when Australia took the lead in the United Nations to formally sponsor Indonesia's transition to independence in the face of quite often uh, fierce opposition from Europe's colonial states. However, people-to-people -people links between Australia and Indonesia remain patchy. Very few Australians travel anywhere in Indonesia outside Bali, and public opinion polls demonstrate that narrow and at times xenophobic caricatures of Indonesia persist. Against this background, Griffith Asia Institute stands ready to do all it can to help promote greater understanding in Australia of Indonesia and of its role in our region and the world. So it gives me great pleasure this evening to introduce our very special guest, Dr. Rizal Sukumar, who is Executive Director of the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Jakarta. And just some very brief uh, background on uh, Dr. Sukumar before, uh, before I invite him to, to, to come up and talk to you this evening. Dr. Sukumar is one of Indonesia's preeminent uh, strategic uh, thinkers. Uh, he was named by uh, the, the US Foreign Policy magazine as uh, one of the top 100 global thinkers uh, in, uh, 19, uh, in, in 2009. Um, he received his PhD in international relations from the London School of Economics in 1997. Uh, Dr. Sukumar was supervised by Professor, Professor Michael, the late Professor Michael Liefer, uh, a, a leading force uh, in, in, in Indonesian studies uh, in, in, in uh, the scholarly community. So, uh, without any further ado, can I please uh, invite Dr. Sukmar to come up and speak to us this evening? Thank you, uh, Professor Andrew O'Neill, uh, Vice Chancellor of the Griffith University, uh, Russell, and also, ladies and gentlemen, very good uh, evening to you all. Uh, first of all, I would like uh, to express my sincere gratitude you know, to the Griffith Asia Institute you know, for inviting me and giving me the honor you know, to speak uh, uh, this evening here today. 
and also I would like to thank the uh, Queensland Art Gallery for providing this very intimidating room, <laughs> which actually uh, gave me uh, a, a, a degree of nervousness you know, because I, I tend to deliver uh, my, my, my presentation you know, in, in a very informal way, but nevertheless, I will try to be a bit formal today, so I will stick to the uh, actually a speech that I have written for this occasion. Uh, indeed, it is uh, also my great pleasure you know, to be here today, which is my first time visit to Brisbane, uh, to share my thought with you on the subject of political transformation in Indonesia and its impact you know, on, on foreign policy. Uh, today, Indonesia is obviously different you know, from what it was 12 years ago, like what uh, Professor O'Neill you know, has just mentioned in his uh, kind introductory remark. Uh, since the collapse of the New Order government in May 1998, Indonesia has once again entered you know, an era of democratic practices. Uh, many actually uh, 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 tend to forget that you know, Indonesia was a democratic state from 1950 to 1956, you know, until Sukarno and the military actually killed that very brief uh, democracy that you know, we had. The introductions of electoral reform, multi-party system, direct elections, decentralization, and freedom of the press have all provided Indonesia with some necessary ingredients to qualify as a democracy. Yet, Indonesia's democracy is still a young one, and the democratization process is still a work in progress. And I believe it will take even many, many more years before Indonesia's democracy becomes consolidated. And at the moment, therefore, it is fair to say that Indonesia's democracy is still characterized by a combination of dramatic breakthrough, moments of great optimism, and also occasional frustration as well. Political transformation in Indonesia has also opened up the opportunity for Islam to once again come to the center stage of national political life. Under the new order government, the relationship between Islam and the state has, had always been characterized by mutual suspicions and also antagonism. In the past, Islam, especially in its political form, was often subject to the politics of marginalization by the state. Nevertheless, Islam managed to preserve, uh, its, political for, to preserve its social influence within the society and the new order government never succeeded in curbing a sense of entitlement among segments of the Muslim community to seek a formal political role. With the opening up of the political systems in 1998, Islam has once again become an important political force in Indonesian politics. The move to a democracy and the revival of Islam as a social and also political force constitute two significant developments in Indonesia's domestic politics since the collapse of Suharto's new order. And Islam and democracy have become two important elements of Indonesia's politics in the post-reformacy era. And in fact, Islam and democracy have become part and parcel of Indonesia's national identity. But please don't confuse this national identity with the state, of, the state identity of Indonesia, which is still non-theocratic in nature. Within this context, there are two significant questions that often raise uh, with regard to democracy and Islam in Indonesia. First, how resilient is Indonesia's democracy? This is a legitimate question indeed, because in newly democratizing state, the path to a democracy has always been susceptible to either democratic backsliding or even the return of authoritarianism. Within Southeast Asia, I think the case of, of Thailand is quite you know, illustrative. Uh, <clears throat> people also wonder you know, whether the emergence of Islamic politics in Indonesia would serve as liability to democracy. In this regard, there are at least four reasons to believe that the role of Islam in Indonesia would be crucial to the development of democracy in Indonesia. 
First, Indonesia's Islam is moderate in nature, and I think by now it's quite cliche, you know, to say that. But nevertheless, this is actually still uh, uh, the, 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 you know, the reality in the country, even though, of course, we also recognize the challenges posed by uh, the growing uh, radicals groups and even, you know, a, a terrorist group that use Islam to justify their uh, uh, acts. And for, but the majority, I think, still, uh, uh, for the majority of Indonesian Muslim, tolerance and respect for religious differences are central to their, to their belief. And this belief is clearly reflected in the strongly held commitment to preserve the pluralistic nature of the state. Indeed, Indonesia has never been based on certain religion, and the state's identity has been defined as neither theocratic nor secular. Second, the democratization movement itself would not have been possible without active participation by Muslim leaders and also Muslim organizations. I think we are quite uh, familiar with the late uh, Abdurrahman Wahid and also the role of Amin Rais you know, in the early years of the reformacy. Both of them actually played a very important role you know, in toppling uh, the authoritarian rule of President Suharto. And I think the emergence of pro-democracy leaders, especially among the younger generations within these two mainstream Muslim organizations, the Naratul Ulama and Muhammadiyah, would also strengthen the commitment to democracy. And third, as a matter of principle, Islamic political parties in Indonesia are also bound to participate in politics within the agreed framework of non-theocratic nature of Indonesia's state identity and also democratic rules of the game. And fourth, all formal political forces, faith-based or otherwise, are clearly aware that it is democracy that has created the opportunity for participation in politics and political process. The political role of Islam, Islamic political parties and the space within which they could articulate Islamic political aspiration and interest could only be guaranteed if democracy continues to be the only game in town. In other words, Muslim politics has a high stake in preserving the continuation of democracy in the country. Because I think many of them realize that if not because of democracy, they all will end up in jail you know, for actually uh, uh, articulating even some you know, anti-Pancasila view. So how then you know, these political changes you know, impacted on foreign policy? First, Indonesia's foreign policy now has to recognize and reflect its new emerging national identity. Indeed, what has transpired you know, from 10 years of reformacy uh, has been the changing national identity of Indonesia, which I already mentioned earlier, where Islam and democracy have become part of this uh, national you know, identity. And previously, for example, Indonesia has always been characterized uh, as the natural leader of Southeast Asia, or even you know, the largest country in Southeast Asia. But after reformacy, especially after the September 11, Indonesia is often depicted as the world's largest Muslim country on the path towards becoming the third largest democracy on earth. Indonesians, both political and community leaders, often take pride in this new identity. And then we can basically see that you know, both President Susilo Yudhoyono and also his former foreign minister, Paasan Wirayuda, often speaks of Indonesia as a democracy and also a moderate Muslim country. And, and until today, I think uh, there is still this recognition you know, within the foreign ministry and also within the government as a whole that you know, both you know, moderate nature of Islam and also uh, 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 democracy uh, uh, should continue you know, to be uh, a part of Indonesia's national identity. Second, Islam has also increased, increasingly played an important consideration in the conduct of foreign policy. However, it is important to note that Indonesia's foreign policy has not been based on co-religionist solidarity. In fact, Indonesia formulated a middle way by which we love middle way all the time. Uh, Indonesia formulated a middle way by which Islam could be incorporated onto foreign policy, 
But Islam, in its moderate form, then entered you know, the vocabulary of Indonesia's foreign policy as an asset. The expression of Islam in foreign policy is formulated in terms of Indonesia's image and role as a moderating voice, not only between the Muslim world and the rest, but also within the Muslim world itself. Third, the changing domestic context within which foreign policy has to be formulated and executed constitutes another important effect of political change on foreign policy. Unlike during the four decades of the authoritarian rule, the current government can no longer ignore people's aspiration and views in formulating and conducting foreign policy. Within a democratic order, foreign policy is no longer an exclusive domain for the new foreign policy-making elites. In the context of Indonesia's democratization process, foreign policy has to be formulated within a complex power structure where the government can no longer act as the only dominant actor. I think those from foreign ministry hate this. <laughs> Fourth, as the democracy begins to consolidate, there is a problem of policy legitimacy. The role of the public and non-governmental actors has increasingly become more important. For a foreign policy initiative to be legitimate, the state is required to allow and incorporate the participation of the society and other stakeholders in policy making. Within this new domestic context, foreign ministry can no longer preserve its monopoly as the only institution that formulates and executes foreign policy. The way by which foreign policy is now made has undergone significant changes. Ladies and gentlemen, so let, now me, let, let me now explore how political transformations you know, in Indonesia in the form of the emergence of democracy and also Islam has been manifested you know, in Indonesia's foreign policy over the last decade. First, democracy and Islam have been incorporated you know, as an asset, or many uh, diplomats also call it soft power, you know, in Indonesia's attempt to furnish its tainted international image in the aftermath of political turmoil of 1998-1999. Significant efforts and energy were devoted to find an effective way uh, to address this image problem at the international stage. You know, because you know, after the September 11, uh, a lot of analysts and also scholars you know, think that you know, when Indonesia moved toward democracy, then you combine you know, democracy and the fact that Indonesia is the uh, country with, you know, with the majority of Muslim, then you, know, you have recipe for disaster, you know, because that is basically a recipe for becoming you know, a terrorist-prone uh, country. So we are aware you know, that this you know, uh, creates you know, a very unpleasant uh, image problem for, you know, for Indonesia uh, abroad. And Indonesian leaders began to project a new Indonesian identity which is constructed as democracy and moderate Islam, both within the country and also outside. And Indonesian leaders have taken proud in the advent of democracy and the fact that it is the largest Muslim country in the world. Second, the impact of political transformation has also been evident in Indonesia's growing confidence in projecting the value of democracy and moderate Islam in its you know, foreign policy. So with regard to democracy, for example, uh, Minister Wirayuda uh, often declared that we have to reflect democracy into our region. That is why we are active you know, in promoting democracy in ASEAN. And such a statement which registers a strong intention to project internal democratic values across border has never been heard of, you know, from any Indonesian foreign ministers in the past. Democracy is also projected you know, into foreign policy through Indonesia's view of how its own neighborhood in Southeast Asia should evolve. And then we had a lot of problems when we tried to promote that within ASEAN, even you know, with uh, countries with not, not to, the, to the extent like, like Burma you know, in, in our neighborhood, such as in Malaysia, for, in Singapore, for example. 
With regard to Islam, Indonesia's government seeks to articulate an image of Indonesia's Islam as moderating voice, like I mentioned earlier, not only between the Muslim world and, and the rest, but also you know, within the Muslim world itself. And this has been put into practice in several ways. First, in order to demonstrate the face of pluralist and moderate face of Indonesia's Islam to the world, the government organized a number of roadshows you know, involving key religious leaders and intellectuals of various faiths to many parts of the world. Second, Indonesian government has also actively taken part in organizing and promoting interfaith and intercultural dialogues at regional and global levels, including you know, a partnership with Australia in this area. Over the last eight years, Indonesia has indeed been an active promoter of regional and global interfaith dialogues. Third, the incorporations of Islam into foreign policy has also been expressed in terms of empowering moderate groups. And fourth, Indonesia's public diplomacy also seeks to cultivate an image of Indonesia as a model where a marriage between democracy and Islam is not only possible but also desirable. And fifth, Indonesia's image as a moderate Muslim country is also sought by offering to play a mediating role in conflicts in the Muslim world and by taking part in peacekeeping operations. But this last one, you know, I think is difficult to achieve. Bapak dan Ibu sekalian, Indonesia's foreign policy might have changed and expanded yeah, uh, uh, since reformasi. But the inclusions of democracy and Islam clearly registers an attempt to embark upon a new course you know, in foreign policy. Indeed, the ongoing initiative pursued by Indonesia's government reflect a number of changes in Indonesia's foreign policy that are too important to be ignored. However, such changes are still elusive in that they are still sought within the limits imposed by the persistence of domestic weaknesses and the dynamics of domestic politics. Domestic weakness is first and foremost reflected in the never-ending process of nation building. The challenge, I think, is quite daunting. And then for those you know, who study Indonesia are really aware of this problem. Only Indonesia are not really aware about that. So I think, uh, uh, and, and, and the search of communal violence, for example, in the past, and also uh, uh, other problems, separatist you know, conflict that accompanied for reformacy, for example, have undermined the image of the young democracy in the eyes of regional partners. Within such domestic predicaments, the desire to project the values of democracy into foreign policy often invites cynical questions from regional partners regarding the viability and also the quality of Indonesia's democracy. As the viability and the quality of Indonesia's democracy at home are in questions, then the credibility of the projection of democracy into Indonesia's foreign policy has also been met with cynical security and even scornful, scornful responses not only from some regional partners, but also from within Indonesia itself. Second, domestic weakness has also been evident in the slow progress of economic recovery. I think it is true that in general the economy has gotten better over the last few years. However, almost, for almost you know, 10 years since the economic crisis of 1997, Indonesia's economy continues to face tremendous problems. Uh, the lack of investment in infrastructure and so on, I think you know, it is quite a familiar story for uh, many uh, uh, who actually want to invest you know, in, in Indonesia and also to the business community you know, in, in, in general. And the fact that the all government officials and the economists in the country know the, all the problem, but none is being addressed you know, in an urgent way, is really disturbing. Third, domestic weakness also manifests itself in the form of enduring conflict between what I call as confidence deficits on the one hand and the illusions of size on the other. Indonesia believes that it deserves respect due to its nature as the largest country in Southeast Asia. 
However, due to the tyranny of domestic weaknesses, as reflected in the fragile nature of national cohesiveness and also limited economic progress, Indonesia is also constantly wary of any possible external forces trying to aggravate its weaknesses. And Australia is always in that category, you know, in the perception of many in, in, in the country. Uh, Indonesia is, it, this, mental, this mentality often finds its clearest manifestation in Indonesia's suspicion and resentment to any possible external intervention, not only in its domestic affairs, but also in the affairs of its immediate external environment of Southeast Asia. In other words, Indonesia often finds itself constantly oscillating between what Michael Liefer has aptly described as a sense of regional entitlement on the one hand and a sense of irritation for not always being able to achieve the desired state of affairs on the other. So the dynamics of domestic politics also set the limit within which changes in foreign policy can be carried out. First, nationalism, I think, has always been at the heart of Indonesia's politics and independence. Within the current context of domestic politics, the nature of Indonesia as a highly nationalistic country has often served not only to limit the range of choices in its foreign policy, but also define the course of action that foreign policymakers are often obliged to take. Second, foreign policy in Indonesia, like in many other countries, has from time to time been subject to competing domestic political agendas of various political forces at home. In other words, there is always a risk that a foreign policy decision could soon become a divisive issue for domestic politics. Then I think the questions of Indonesia's vote at the UN Security Council with regard to the uh, sanctions against Iran uh, uh, illustrate one of the uh, uh, examples of, uh, you know, in, in, in that nature. And third, the limit of change in Indonesia's foreign policy is also reflected in the problem of state identity, which continues to generate what I call a dilemma of dual identity. On the one hand, Indonesia's official state identity has never been defined in terms of Islam. On the other hand, however, Islam is majority religions of the people. While the government is obliged not to base its foreign policy on religious considerations, some segments of Indonesia's polity often demand that co-religionist concern should also inform the conduct of the country's foreign policy. When Indonesia's government supports Palestine on the basis of decolonization, the population sees that as a display of co-religionist solidarity to other fellow Muslims. Uh, the case of Iran, again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the UN Resolution Number 1747, within the framework of addressing the problem of non-proliferation issue, domestic constituency understood Indonesia's vote uh, at the UN in favor of sanctioning Iran as a form of betrayal against another Muslim country. So this gap often forced the government to find a balanced course of action that addressed the realities of international relations on the one hand and also the emotions of domestic constituency on the other. The result, we often take abstinence position within the UN Security Council. And finally, Indonesia's foreign policy has often been limited by the incompatibility between institutional preference of those in foreign ministry on the one hand and personal preference of top power, top power holder, the president, on the other. So the case of Indonesia's relations with China during the 1970s until early 1980s is quite illustrative. During that period, the foreign ministry believed that the restoration of diplomatic ties with China would enhance Indonesia's regional role. President Suharto, however, preferred to treat China as a lingering threat to Indonesia's national security and regional stability. Under Wahid presidency, the foreign ministry was almost at loss in following the president's erratic foreign policy agendas. 
At present, foreign ministries preference to focus on East Asia, where Indonesia can actually matter more, needs to be balanced with the President's taste for a larger Indonesia's role in global affairs. The limits of change discussed both in turn define the degree to which Indonesia's policymakers have to express some continuity in foreign policy. Those limits bring about elements of continuity in the form of lasting sense of regional entitlement, continued anxiety over extra-regional powers, the limited accommodation of Islamic considerations in foreign policy, and the need to invoke the distinction between form and substance you know, in foreign policy. And I think this last point is very important because it's not easy even for Indonesian like me to understand which one is form, which one is substance, because you know, in Indonesia, form is the substance, sometimes. So what directions uh, are then, you know, would Indonesia's foreign policy take in the years to come? As the above discussion suggests, Indonesia's foreign policy will likely continue to travel the same path you know, it has always been traveling over the last 40 years. At normative level, it will continue to project an active and independent foreign policy. At empirical level, that ideal would have to be balanced within the desire to change and the limits within which those changes could be attained. In that context, Indonesia's foreign policy would continue to produce both elements of change and continuity, depending on its ability to address the persistent domestic weaknesses and also the dynamics of domestic politics. After all, the effects of domestic politics on Indonesia's foreign policy have always been striking. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew. Uh, Chancellor, Vice-Chancellor, distinguished guests, um, it's uh, an enormous pleasure for the uh, Australian Institute of International Affairs to uh, join with the uh, Griffith Asia Institute and the uh, Centre for Asia-Pacific Art to, uh, to welcome uh, Dr. Sukma uh, to talk to us tonight. Our Institute has been uh, especially privileged this week in that two days ago uh, uh, Dr. Sukma uh, addressed us to uh, um, great acclaim and I must say to a, a very welcoming audience who felt that he certainly presented the, uh, the human face, if you like, of, uh, of Indonesia which um, so many Australians just do not understand. I found that um, Dr. Sukma's address tonight was uh, um, extraordinarily uh, enlightening. Very pleased to, uh, to see that uh, uh, the institutional side of, uh, of your society at least seems to favour a secular society, whereas probably some have commented that we in Australia at the moment are waiting to see whether three independent members of our federal parliament are going to deliver us a theocracy or otherwise. <laughs> um, but it really has been a, a great pleasure to hear from you again today, uh, Rizal. You have been, you're a most entertaining speaker. It is, is great to, to hear someone talk on such a, an important topic with such personal warmth and knowledge. And uh, I would like everyone here to join with me in thanking uh, uh, Dr. Rizal Sukma very much for his address. For more Griffith University podcasts, go to www.griffith.edu.au forward slash podcasts.